Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. Today, Graham McMillan and I talk about Ultimate Comics Spider-Man number one, continuity expectations, Blackest Night number two and its crossovers, the infamous John Byrne Millennium crossover issue, and the difficulty of making difficult characters charming. It's the first of several podcasts recorded right before Disney announced it was buying Marvel, so you are either saved from hearing relentless speculation or cursed to listen to irrelevant chit-chat, depending on who you see it. Either way, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Graham McMillan. So you can be like version of my name. What's that? There should be a longer version of my name that you, you could be like Jeffrey Lester and you'd be like Graham Offshows. <laughs> That's the problem. Well, who knows? I never asked. I, I always assumed that Graham wasn't short for anything. It, it It's not. Right? Graham is, as far as I know, not short for anything. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you can't make something up. That is that is true. I will. That'll be a project that I will have to start working on pronto. Yes, it can be your project runway. My project runway. Oh, you are just a pop culture. I'm just today, dropping those comments today. No, <laughs> nonstop. Well, um, before we each talk about our respective uh, batches of books that neither of the other have read, um, did you read Blackest Night number two? I have. In fact, I, I've read all of the Blackest Nights up to the one that came out this week, so I've read all of them apart from the Teen Titans and latest Green Lantern issues. Oh, okay. Um, huh. And I have to say, I'm actually enjoying it much more than I thought I was going to. Interesting. Like like the crossovers as well. Uh, yeah, you know, actually it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I was kind of disappointed by Blackest Night number two because I realized I was expecting it to sort of be... I don't know, like kind of a, like kind of a complete story sort of thing. Like I'm impressed that Blackest Night number one like leads into Blackest Night number two, and you've got a lot of the same characters and the same stuff happening, while it also tries to open up its scope and stuff. But I kind of had that feeling of Blackest Night number two, where I'm like, oh right, this is a big event crossover, which means that when you pick up this title, sometimes you feel like everything is actually happening somewhere else. You know what I mean? Well, my problem with number two was I thought that it pretty much traded water after number one. Exactly. I don't think it really, it, it really did anything. But the thing is, none of the crossovers really did anything with that corsary either. There's a green, the Green Lantern issue where Hal and Barry have run one of their fights. Mm-hmm. But that pretty much leads straight into Blackest Night 2 where they finish the fight, or at least finish that part of the fight, and then John comes back and he's like, look, here's my other dead buddies. Right. But um, but the Green Lantern core issue, I think, is great. Um, and the Superman and Batman miniseries, I both think, are really good as well. Um, Superman in particular, I think, would work if you were not reading Blackest Night especially well. Uh. I, think, I think it actually works really well. The Batman suffers from the fact that no one apart from Grant Morrison really seems to have down the dynamic between Dick and Damien. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because in the Blackest Nights Batman that uh, Peter Tomasi is writing, they both just seem like assholes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you can see that he's really straining to try and get the weird dynamic that Morrison's given them, but he's just not succeeding. Like Dick just comes off as a dick. Yeah, Morrison seems to be one of those characters who actually can write bitchy but charming, and it seems like almost nobody else can do it. Like, he did that very well with Emma Frost as well, you know? Yeah, I think Emma Frost has become one of these terribly um, 
underwritten characters and everyone else's everyone else ever since I mean even Warren Ellis and uh, Joss Whedon I think don't write as interesting an Emma as granted mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think so too because because I guess I, yeah just somehow again it's that it's that ability to have a character be really bitchy or really aggravating and yet still have a charm or charisma that understands to let you understand why the characters treat the, let them get away with it sort of and yeah exactly it never really seems to work with everyone else so which i don't know says some really interesting things about i don't know maybe grant morrison i'm not, I'm not sure well one of the things is i think grant morrison genuinely likes all his characters in a way that lots of writers don't mm-hmm. i think lots of writers can think that they're very smart for having characters who are not who are kind of assholes who are not really likable mm-hmm. but i think grant can have assholes who he likes and i think there's there's a difference i think there's a difference between having an a non-likable character and a dislikable character. A non-likable and a dislikable character? Do you know what I mean? Like, there, there's ones that... Like, I think Grant can write someone who has absolutely no um, moral upsides to them at all. Mm-hmm. But you will still like them. Mm-hmm. Whereas most writers are just like, well, I'll just... They do, they do the Mark Miller trick. This yeah. guy will just be an asshole. But they will do something that make that you will admire them, or you feel that you should admire them. See, I, I think it's actually kind of just um, it's because I think I think I think Mark Miller. I think most people are. It's kind of like that whole uh, thing where every once in a while, when I, I talk about people having swagger, you know, it's it's kind of like there are some people who have enough charisma or enough talent to pull something off. But it's you know it's almost like in the movies where like some guy comes comes and does the perfect pickup line and it works for him and somebody else does the exact same thing and the the lady pours the drink on his head or whatever it's you know it's that the people who are trying to write the same character don't have enough charisma or flair or have that have the way to make that character work in a way that makes him seem likable you know. And so they fall back on the tricks of, oh, well, I'll just make them awesome, and then everyone will appreciate them because they're awesome, like you said. Ah, uh, Mark Miller. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, yes. I, I, I was in the um, my local comic book store earlier on this week, and I was thinking, what will I buy? And I picked up Ultimate Comics Avengers, thinking that I, I owed it to myself and, and the comic community to, to buy an issue. And then I literally couldn't go through with it. I was like, really? I'm, not go- I'm not going to like this, and I'm not going to add anything to the world by telling them that I don't like it, because no one expects me to like this anyway. Therefore, I'm going to save my three ninety nine. There we go. That's probably best for all involved, uh, maybe. Or um, I'm, I'm sure Mark, I'm sure there's people who are like, I don't care if you hate it, just buy it, you know? Um, <laughs> so I think it's actually a huge breakthrough for you that you that you didn't pick it up. Did you Exactly. I did pick up Ultimate Spider-Man, um, which I had completely the opposite reaction to Hibbs for the reason that Hibbs had read the previous 133 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man and I hadn't. I see. I, I, I thought it was a spectacular issue. Oh, yeah. I thought it was really, really good. I thought it's one of Ben's strongest things for a long time and really helps along with David LaFrentis' art, which I thought was wonderful. I really completely bought into it and I did not give a shit about they've rebuilt New York in six months because 
let's face it, I don't think anyone really cared about Ultimatum anyway. And I, I don't, that, that doesn't bother me. I think hope bringing that over shows that you're caring too much about continuity as a concept as opposed to uh, integrity of the story. I pretty much just was like, okay, they've rebuilt New York. It's like the whole reason about um, people disliking the current status of Spider-Man because of One More Day. Right. It's it's done. Really, it's like a year and a half later, move on. Right. Well, which I can totally see with Spider-Man, as, as we've talked about. I, I think that there's a lot to be said for people, like you said, the Ultimates, it sounds to me like you were the perfect audience in that sense of somebody who jumped on after paying no attention to the rest of Bendis's, you know, the... the well, I've, I've actually, I've, I've read a fair amount of it. It's just mm-hmm. I didn't read all of it. Um, and that's purely because I didn't jump on at the start and I jumped off uh, for no real reason. I just was reading it in trades and then I wasn't. Right. You know, but I, I thought this was a great first issue. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, between the two of you, I, I have been kind of interested. I used to really enjoy enjoy Ultimate Spider-Man, and I read it pretty close to, I don't know, I think I gave up before issue 100, though, so I'm, you know, I was I was definitely kind of behind, and I'm not really sure if I'm, like, eager to jump back on or jump back off, but there is kind of a... I do understand people who are upset, not, not just in a Spider-Man, you know, brand new day kind of way, or one more day kind of thing, but, but more along the lines of, like, okay, you stopped all the numbering, you had this huge event that supposedly is supposed to change everything, and then it comes back, and it's been completely disregarded by everybody. I mean, it's not... It's not... Oh, but the whole thing is, I don't think Ultimatum ultimately is, because I think one of the things that's going to come from it is, you can tell, even from the first issue, that Johnny Storm from Ultimate Fantastic Four is now a member of the cast list for Ultimate Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, having not read, but read reviews of Ultimate Avengers, it looks similar that they have essentially broken up the building blocks of the books and put them together in new ways. Mm-hmm. Ultimate Spider-Man, you have less leeway to do that because pretty much he's always going to be Peter Parker and there's a lot of things that come along with the character that you can't change without really breaking the character. Mm-hmm. And so he's pretty stuck. But, I mean, Avengers looks like it's pretty much going to be whatever characters they want to have, mm-hmm. which I, th- I think is a different thing. And I, I um, judging at least by the cover of Ultimate Spider-Man, it looks like his cast list is now going to include Kitty Pride and Iceman from X-Men and Human Torch from Fantastic Four, hmm. which does offer some level of um, evolution for the book, and as does having no more Daily Bugle. Because the Daily Bugle's out of business now. Oh, interesting. Huh. So they've so they pretty much written all of those characters out, necessitating a new cast. A new cast. Hmm. So it's kind of Ultimate Spider-Man and his amazing friends? Yeah. Hmm. That would be kind of interesting, I guess. I don't know. I mean, like you said, yeah, but they could have they could have done that cosmetic change without all the... without all the hoopla. It yeah, but I think, I think the cosmetic change was for all of the rest of the Ultimate line. Mm -hmm. Because Ultimate Spider-Man aside, the rest of the Ultimate line was pretty broken. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) I I mean, that that became very, very clear when nobody could seem to sell an issue no matter what what was happening for the most part. Um, 
I, I mean, unless you were absolute, unless you had Jeff Loeb doing absolutely terrible things, uh, in which case it looked like it sold okay for the most part. As we said, I, I didn't read um, Ultimatum at all, and I really want to. Ultimatum I, has been torn to shreds so much I know. that the mask it is in me really wants to read it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to admit that I, I, I read a couple of the, the scanned last pages just because everybody's like, yeah, you just got to see, you just can't believe, like, why why does the thing kill Doc Doom? And I'm like, hmm, I have to look at that and then look at it and go, huh, that's... I, I, I still don't know why he does it. I, I don't think anyone does. I think it's it's kind of, it's, it's kind of one of the great mysteries. Um, but I, I, think, I think, but I think a lot of things, uh, a lot of the... Anger might be the wrong thing to say, but a, a lot of the ill feeling towards Ultimatum is because of cheapness. Like, it's Spider Man dead, and not only is he not dead, he just turns out to be being buried under rubble for three issues. You yeah, know, I think things like that is, are, are understandable reasons for people to be pissed. Well, I, I agree. I think there's a lot of understandable. I mean, there's that. I think there's also kind of a thing of for some people, I think it's easy to come across the idea of. Uh, having big continuity events get easily dismissed because of the idea that continuity is too big and too unwieldy or you work yourself into a corner. But but yeah, I mean, the, the fact that they made people... Well, made. The fact that the last issue of Ultimate Spider-Man was a wordless issue that ended on a cliffhanger that was... that sounds like it was just kind of fancy-danned over in the first issue. I mean, that's... Uh, that's kind of frustrating. I think you, you know, it's sort of... Well, I mean, the whole thing is, the end of Ultimate Spider-Man was the wordless issue, which is, which doesn't even have Spider-Man in it, because Spider-Man is theoretically dead. Exactly. Which they then deal with in one page of the second Ultimate Spider-Man Requiem issue. Right. I mean, that... Literally, they, they just find him, and they're like, there he is. <laughs> I mean... That is I, a little I, I, cheap, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, I don't think that's reason enough to be mad at the new series because it happened outside of the new series. Mm-hmm. I think you can you can be mad at the franchise. Mm-hmm. I just don't think you can be mad at the first issue of the new series because it had happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they supposed to do? And also, it would have been completely unfair to start the new series with, you know, welcome aboard, new readers. Now everyone thinks Spider Man's dead. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm totally agree. I also think it sounds like there's there could have been a lot of different ways they could have ended the series um, other than this sort of like, oh, what's going to happen? Is he dead? There's rumors that he may not be. And then you pick it up and, of course, it jumps right in. I think there's a certain level of um, kind of crass cynicism there that, that I can understand people being frustrated at. And like you said, it's maybe it's not necessarily fair to the first issue, but it's the entire context. Nobody creates that context for the first issue except Marvel and the people putting that book together. You know, Well, you... I, w- I would love to be inside Brian Michael Benz's brain because I would be very surprised if he eagerly embraced the way the Ultimate Spider-Man ended. Because um, he, he pretty much avoided crossovers mm-hmm. the whole way through. They all went into de- into other miniseries mm-hmm. up until Ultimatum, and then Ultimatum kills his book mm-hmm. with a cliffhanger. You know, I that that really, and he'll never say it because it's it's Bendis, but that really struck me as um, editorial mandated. 
and not something he would have chosen to have done if he had had his druthers. Uh, but it's kind of hard to imagine that Brian Bendis does not have his druthers with Ultimate Spider-Man. I, on the one hand, you're right. At the end of the day, these guys ultimately, you know, they decide to take one for a team or it's like they figure they can work around it. But, I mean, you know as well as I do that, that Bendis has done stuff like for his big, you know, Marvel crossovers like Secret Invasion where editorial maybe wasn't really happy with where it ended up and kind of had to go along with it. I find it hard to believe that they would do that with, say, the Marvel Universe proper and then turn around with the Ultimate Universe where Bendis is the only consistent performer or success in the field and then kind of screw him on it. It seems kind of... that seems. Oh, but I, I, I don't think he'll have been screwed as much as he'll have voluntarily been screwed. Like, Loeb would have said it will be great if and he would have been like, no, that's a great idea, and no one in his heart that it wasn't. I see. Yeah, that's certainly true. I, I, I it, it still is one of those situations where you're like, you kind of hope, that, you know, as a reader, I think you would kind of hope that the, the writer was looking out for you a little more than that, I think, but you know, are, are, are you innocent, innocent man? <laughs> Certainly, that that would would describe me. Oh, so yeah, to bring to so to return in a way to Blackest Night number two, um, I I you've this the Blackest Night Superman tie-in you said is actually pretty great and and more or less self-contained. Like you don't have to read yeah, it and read the, other the Blackest Night Superman uh, tie-in is. Like all of the tie-ins so far, which is, I can both understand that it's beginning to get a little bit wearing, the build-up more than the story itself, mm-hmm. but it's a really well-done build-up, and it plays, it's a horror movie for the first like half of the book. Because mm. <laughs> what happens is, Superman of Earth 2 comes back and basically kills Smallville. Huh. Like, you see people disappearing in Smallville, and then the little, you know, percentage, 1.3% will go up all the way through a book until he, you know, comes and is like, hey, Superman, I'm going to kill you. Huh. Interesting. And by that point, he's killed off all of Smallville? Most of Smallville? It's, it's, no, it, you've seen him kill off, like, I don't know, maybe 15 people, but th- you don't see anyone else in Smallville. And later on, they arrive in Smallville and they point out that no one is, like, they can't hear any life in Smallville. Hmm. Chances are because everyone has run away. But right. there's definitely an implication, if you want to read it that way, that he's killed off everyone in Smallville. Well, my goodness. Uh, that, that but of course he would. It'll be like John Burns Millennium crossover. It's like, everyone in Smallville is a Manhunter. Only joking. <laughs> Do you remember that? Am I the only person who remembers that? Because Millennium was my favorite DC crossover. Uh, actually, Graham, yes, you are the only person who remembers that. I okay. hate to tell you. Okay, Millennium was the last time Green Lantern... Um, had this much control over the DC universe. I, I uh, do remember. I remember what Millennium was about, but I have to. I will confess. Okay, the, the, I read the Superman, all the horrible issues and not the various tie-ins. Okay, so. the Superman crossover was this. Mm-hmm. Everyone in each book is a Manhunter. Right. It's revealed in Superman that Lana Lang is, is the Manhunter. Uh huh. She goes back to Smallville, where Clark Kent discovers that after his spaceship landed. The real Manhunter was the, was the town doctor who implanted Manhunter like brainwashing programs into every child born <laughs> after that point in Smallville. Which means that everyone in Smallville under like 
25 years of age is a manhunter. Genius. Which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. Okay. I'd literally, like the next issue, they're all like, wow, I'm glad we've woken up from that manhunter brainwashing and everything's fine. <laughs> well, it was brainwashing. You know, That's. I think that's fair to say. I mean, the thing that's a shame is, is that, you know, John Byrne is not Chris Claremont because Chris Claremont would have them all remember their manhunter training and all of Smallville would tra- join the X-Men as some sort of super ninja team you know, the Smallville ninja team, you know? <laughs> Which, of course, if this was, if that was DC now, would have their own miniseries. Millennium Aftermath, the Smallville ninja team. <laughs> It'd be great. They could be like the Superman revenge squad, but they're the revenge squad that gets revenge. Or Superman. Exactly. See, these, these, I tell you, these pitches just write themselves, Graham. <laughs> Only for you, Jay. Yeah, that is true. Um, one, Are you reading the Superman books at all? No, no. I totally. I was not. I, I paid. You're not I, enamored. Yeah, you know, it was just something where I had started to follow it with Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, and I got so tired of being yanked around by that schedule that I jumped off. And then, of course, Donner left. Gary Frank comes on. It sounds like it was, you know, building up ahead of steam and seemed kind of interesting. But no, I I just and then of course there's the whole like new Krypton storyline. I've just been kind of staying away from it. It's it's either something I'll get to in trade or or something like even the Blackest Night stuff. I was kind of hoping that I would be able to read the Blackest Night miniseries on its own, and then maybe pick up one of the Green Lantern books and kind of feel like I was getting enough of the story to kind of be entertained. But after be, reading that be, second issue, what's that? Really? To be fair, I think if you read Green Lantern and Blackest Night, you'll be fine. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, Blackest Night number two really had, like, it had this, the world's, I mean, it was like the, it was the zombie Aquaman fight scene went on and on and on yeah, and on. Yeah, but I, I, being the person who has read all the crossovers, you have missed nothing by not reading any of the other books. <laughs> so don't, don't feel like you're missing something. You really haven't. One thing I have to give credit to Jeff Johns for, because I realize that he's written several of these big events, and who knows, maybe it's because of where he jumped, you know, how he got his break at DC, but I love the fact that every miniseries, big event miniseries, has to have a page where the Spectre's taken out. You know what I mean? Yeah, isn't it crazy? What does he have about the Spectre, for the love of God? Well, pun intended, pun intended. Not intended? Sadly not. Oh, I'm so sad. Um, yeah, I, it, well, I, I think he started off writing a Spectre miniseries. Wasn't that John's first assignment? He's, he's, yeah, he started off with Day of Just, uh, Judgment. Right. So which I, was the Hal Jordan comes to Spectre story. So I think for I think for uh, Jeff Johns, he's always conscious of maybe because that's where he started out. The idea that the Spectre is the most powerful figure in the DC universe. But okay, can so you explain to me what yes. happened to the Spectre in Blackest Night too? No, I have no idea. I I think it's the funniest thing. Like I said, there was the first issue of Green of uh, Blackest Night number one. I had. Uh, cracked me up like blackest night number two that super widespread spread where zombie specters like i want hell jordan back or whatever i'm like what like that yeah, just cracked also, me why up did, why does he want hell jordan back i know it's like, like why 
I don't I don't get it at all. I really Were they don't. dating? Like I just don't I mean it really is really really funny and it's really funny at that size. Like there's just stuff there's stuff that Jeff Johns intends to be like sort of funny and kind of creepy like like I love the fact that that those Atlanteans get attacked by zombie sharks. Did you notice that? That like yes. I love that. Like fucking zombie sharks. That's awesome. But this like super double page spread where you turn it sideways and it's the specter has you know has been possessed by the black lantern of Crispus Allen because Crispus Allen's dead or something and or maybe because the specter is his own zombie where he's like hollering for for wanting Hal Jordan back. I mean it seems like a country western song, you know? Like him like I want Hal Jordan back and you sort of it sort of feels like he's supposed to be saying that in front of a like trailer while dressed up in some sort of corset halter top kind of thing and like, you know, holding like two kids in each arm or something, you know, like I, I think we've just said a terrifying look <laughs> into your mind there, my friend. Some may call it Edifying as much as terrifying, but yeah, no. Admittedly, I I think it's it, it's my my rural Humboldt County upbringing that yeah, whenever anything gets too absurd, I just go to the white trashy comparison there. Yeah, where it really is, he's like there, like with beers in each hand, like I want Hal Jordan back. You can't take away my Hal Jordan. Like it cracked my shit up. But also, I love the idea that the next. Um, big event should just be called Let's Deball the Spectre because every big event always has these like three or four pages where they have to make an excuse as to why the Spectre cannot be doing shit because the idea is... Hey, hey, Final Crisis didn't... Final Crisis just like, Greg, you take the Spectre. You have them in your own series. We'll just be over here destroying the Earth. <laughs> no, I, th- I thought they made an excuse for him in Final Crisis as to why no. he's not fucking shit up. No, he's just off with um, the, the question. That's it. Mm, in Final Crisis, really? In Final Crisis, yes. He doesn't appear. Hmm, okay, I'm thinking I, of Infinite Crisis or something else. Where they Infinite, Infinite Crisis, he definitely does. Infinite Crisis is, is Jeff Johns, and he gets... Something happens to him. I can't even remember. <laughs> oh, doesn't, doesn't he get possessed by, by a bad guy in Infinite Crisis? Right, I think that's it. Yeah, he, he does. Or he, he, he has to fight possession or some sort of thing like that but yeah, yeah they, they come up with does, a reason to keep him busy yeah that's mm-hmm. the, the day of judgment thing he he becomes a bad guy for some reason mm. yeah huh. was that not the entire point of the day of judgment thing i dude i don't know what the day of judgment thing i totally ignored i ignored that and then i'm trying to remember because i paid attention to final crisis and infinite crisis he, he's, and... he's not i'm sure he's not in final crisis apart from in the greg rocker series i'm sure that Grant literally does nothing with the Spectre. Oh, 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 right. Yeah. No, uh, no, you're right. He doesn't because they do come up with that other, the, the Greg Rucka has his thing. Oh, which is another good question. Why do they bring Aquaman? They do bring Aquaman back at the end of Final Crisis, don't they? Yes, they do. And then he's back to not being, like, do they kill him off one more time between Final Crisis um, and Blackest Night? Or? No, they, they, they make some sort of comment about it being a, an Aquaman from another world or something, which may or may not even be in the comic. That may be in another comic. Wow. There's, there's, there's some, because it's one of those things, uh, I was actually having this conversation with um, Alistair from my own nine earlier on this week. Grant Morrison keeps making all these changes to continuity that other people just don't do anything with and occasionally openly contradict. Mm-hmm. Um, 
like Zariel in Justice League is supposed to be the new Hawkman, and mm-hmm. he, and he just isn't. Like yes. they bring they bring the real Hawkman back in the middle of him being, becoming the new Hawkman, and this is the same. Like I'm pretty sure they just like ignored Grant mm-hmm. Aquaman, and they're just like, yeah, that that never happened. <laughs> that Aquaman you saw that that wasn't Aquaman. No, no, that what no Aquaman. What are you talking about? Yeah, there's 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 some sort of weird. You no, know, you didn't really see that writing in, going on there. You know, actually, now that you mention it, the idea that it was the Aquaman from another Earth does sound familiar, and I'm trying to think where the hell they talked about that. I have the horrible feeling that's like an identity interview. Yes. I, re- I, re- I really don't think it's in a comic at all. I think that's just something that they, they just never really address in a comic. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an encouraging um, thought for us all who follow comics now, is that the there's really... Unless unless you're downloading the DC Comics podcasts from San Diego, that's the only way to experience the comics now, man. That's right. In the press conferences and interviews before and afterhand. It has to be said, if you are, um, dear listeners, in the process of downloading the DC Comics podcast from San Diego, please do yourself a favor and download the Sunday Conversation podcast, wherein our friend uh, Carl Hoffman starts the story of the Blood Colossus, which, Jeff, you and I have heard more than once at this point and know is the greatest thing in the world, only to be cut off by the panelists who don't want her to finish. And I, I was listening to this podcast, and I swear to God, if I could have gone back in time, gone to that panel and told them to shut up, because Carla was about to lay the most awesome experience for all of them of the convention on them, I would... Seriously, she gets she gets into like she gets the part where she's talking about uh, Odin calling the enchantress a whore, and then they just start talking over. Her. And I was like, "You're just getting started, man." <laughs> well, I do love that story, but I can see where it maybe might not be the most appropriate point for a DC Sunday panel, right? But the, well, it's it's all like, what comics do you think are awesome? And like, Carla literally is like. Like, all I hear is this voice going, Blood Oath, Thor! And I was like, it's Carla! <laughs> and I swear to God, I was hoping so much that they would let her finish, just so I could tell everyone who has never met Carla, please just listen to this. Like, 32 minutes in, just listen to this, and then you'll understand why Carla Hoffman is possibly the greatest force for good in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Having heard that but, story, but I all. completely and totally agree. So, it, I, I think it is kind of... Uh, I wish we could, I wonder if there's a way that we can sort of three-way Skype, you know, so that we can start having guests on. You know? Oh, I have a, I have another guest that we should invite on. Oh, yeah? Who? Uh, we should invite Lauren on, because she reads webcomics and we don't. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't. I mean, I read some webcomics, but, I mean, you know, just like a little, little sliver. She reads... Yeah, every- Lauren, Lauren knows webcomics. We really yeah. should get Lauren. Yeah. That would be great. Um, okay, well, we sort of have part one. Yeah, so I guess if we, yeah, we've talked for half an hour, so mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. this could be part one, and then when we come back, I think we should talk about the fact that neither of us have read anything else this week apart from old comics. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, we'll come back in just a second, and then we will talk about old comics. Farewell, listeners. Farewell. Farewell.